For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I started making parallels between, drawing parallels between how the evangelical uh, marketing machine had made so much money and probably in the billions Mm. at that point on hate mongering against the LGBT community, raising money against the gay agenda um, via direct mail, via the same tools and tactics that the Republican campaign operatives that I worked with would use to raise money for politicians. It was exactly the same thing. And so I started to put these pieces together. There's so much cynicism and so much dissonance going on be, uh, among the people who work in these industries um, uh, and, and for these people, that these, these, these institutions that I had been a part of began to crumble like right before my eyes. Everything, it was like once, once you see, you cannot unsee. Taking me too long to recover. How go feed the sick and poor and try to help. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. And before I get to this week's guest, a few bits of housekeeping. To keep current with everything we're up to, check out our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. There you can read our blog, link to us on social media, send us an email, uh, and listen to our entire back catalog of episodes. You can also snag a t-shirt or a pint glass on our web store, or if you'd like to support us, you can link to our Patreon page. This week, I welcome Ron Steslow to the podcast. Uh, Ron has a remarkable story. Leading up to the 2016 elections, Ron had, by the age of 33, run a $50 million Senate race for the Republican Party, worked for the National Republican Senatorial Committee, led redistricting efforts in Nevada, and started his own consulting firm that boasted clients such as Carly Fiorina. Makes you feel a little lazy if you're uh, uh, the age that I am now. I've done uh, none of that. So um, anyway, Ron was the feature of the Republican Party. But behind the scenes, Ron was beginning to deconstruct his politics, his faith, and his own vision for his future. So we talked all about his youth as the son of a fundamentalist evangelical preacher, coming out to his parents in his late 20s, and his break from the political party that he seemed destined to help lead. Check out Ron's new podcast, Politicology, available everywhere you find your podcasts. And so without further ado, I give you Ron freaking Steslow. And I gave you my money so that you would tell me what to. 
got to do it Joe Rogan style. Boom, and we're live. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I, I like it. I don't know if you do, you, do you ever listen to Krista Tippett? On being, um, I have I have a few times on being. I've actually, you know, speaking of uh, of you know running in the same circles and uh, tribes, Padraig's new uh, podcast on um, uh, with on being network is one I've listened to a lot. I really, oh, I didn't really even, love him. So didn't even know he was. On. Yeah, yeah, he's doing he's doing uh, poetry unbound. Um, oh, cool with uh, in the on being network, and it's just it's terrific. It's curated poetry um, that he that he reads and then unpacks, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'll have to check that out. But yeah, it reminded me of um, uh, Krista Tippett does. I, I don't know if she still does it. She used to release kind of the cleaned up, edited version, and then she would release the one where literally it's yeah. this, them sitting down and and like you hear chairs creaking and stuff like. Anyway, yep, yep. <laughs> well, I suppose I should introduce you. Uh, <laughs> So thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> hey, everybody. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, before we get too deep, because uh, we've never, you know, I think I told you before we started recording, like we've kind of steered clear of politics, but I've done again, I've never been uh, in a position to have somebody who w- literally worked in politics at, at some of the highest levels um, who can talk about it from the inside uh, and has a very unique religious upbringing as well. And so you are a unique fit for the podcast. So thank you for coming on and, and, uh, all the things that you're uh, going to share, hopefully. <laughs> um, I'm excited to be here and just uh, happy to have a good time. This is um, I don't I don't do this a lot, and uh, I'm usually on the other side of the conversation asking the questions. So this yeah. is going to be this is going to be fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, so for for people who who don't know you yet, um, talk a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. Sure. Um, uh, my name is Ron Steslow. I host a podcast called Politicology, but before that, I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast, which I co-founded in 2019, and um, I've spent up to now about 18 years uh, working in high-stakes Republican politics, um, and uh, yeah, just recently made the switch to um, podcasting media from, from, from a very long, uh, consulting career. So that's incredible. And, and you are, you are a young guy, like you've been, and and they, by the way, I think it's, I always think it's funny when they say that in articles about people, they they point out the age and they're like, look look at this whippersnapper, you know, like, (laughs) like, cause you're in your like mid thirties. Yeah. Like I say, I 18. Yeah. It's been 18 years, but I, you know, I'm 37. Uh, and I've been doing this for that long. Actually, I went, you know, my first, uh, gosh, I think I was a sophomore in college when I first started interning and, uh, and one thing led to another, um, that was in O that was in O two or O three. And then, uh, the Bush Cheney O four campaign, um, was, uh, the first major inflection point. And then, um, so this is, I grew up in Nevada, so I, I worked for a senator there, conservative Republican senator. Um, and I started interning there when I was in college, and then one thing led to another. And uh, when I grad, before I graduated, they offered me a job on the campaign, so I did that. And then three federal campaigns uh, in the same cycle later, um, uh, the next thing I knew, you know, I, I had a job offer in Washington. And... Um, 
things just sort of you know continued to 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 spiral in the right direction although that's not what i intended to do it was <laughs> it was satisfying and exciting and um and i was good at it and uh and then eventually um many campaigns later uh and some national work later i started a consulting firm in dc and um and uh, we did pretty well. And, um, then I, I ran Carly Fiorina's, uh, um, marketing operation in, uh, 2015. And, uh, and then when Donald Trump became the nominee, that was, um, and maybe we can get into this, but that was not the, um, that was not the catalyst uh, <laughs> for a, a reexamination of my affiliation with the Republican Party. That was that was the straw that broke the camel's back. At that point, it was the mm. it was the it was the yeah, it was the final moment, and um, and that's when I knew I can't I can't do this anymore. I can't be part of this thing. So, yeah, yeah. Let's let's dig into that. So before we get into that, yeah. though, um, I think we have to start. Uh, at the beginning. And so, sure, you know, uh, so you said you, <laughs> you grew up out West, you know, we're, we're in the Midwest here. We're in the middle of Columbus, Ohio, where it's currently very cool and rainy. Um, oh, yeah. but, uh, so what kind of, what kind of upbringing did you have? Were you raised religious? Um, uh, what, what kind of, you know, what kind of upbringing did you experience? Yeah. Uh, I was a PK. Um, my, my dad was a, uh, an evangelical pastor, um, Foursquare for your listeners who know the denomination. Um, <laughs> uh, we um, uh, we he had a small church in a little town in uh, in Nevada, about thirty miles outside of Las Vegas, and uh, I was homeschooled until third grade, fourth grade, um, and yeah, it was it was a very sort of fundamental, um, uh, but but very loving upbringing and. Um, and very conservative. This was, you know, Dr. Dobson, uh, focus on the family, um, adventures and odyssey is what we, (laughs) you know, those were our bedtime stories. Right. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and, and it was honestly, it was a great childhood, uh, up until, up until adolescence. And, um, you know, when it came time for the birds and the bees talk, I didn't get that talk. I got, uh, I, instead I got a copy of Dobson's preparing for adolescence left on my pillow. And, uh, and that was, that was my, that was my, that was my, um, that was my explanation for everything. And, um, so <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I, you know, and it was around that time I started realizing I was attracted to guys and, and didn't know, you know, what to do with that. It was, it was really scary, really dark, you know, I'd, you know, pray, uh, every night, God, no, no, please don't, not this, anything but this, right. That, that just can't be, um, don't do this to me. And, uh, obviously that didn't, um, that didn't work. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, um, it would be a long and, um, uh, pretty tough, uh, several years as a teenager, as a tween and then a teenager. And I started to withdraw and, uh, become sort of less comfortable in my own skin. And even looking back now, I, I, I see photos of myself at that age and I just, you know, I have so much empathy for that kid because he was just, you know, so uncomfortable with who he was and so sort of desperate to, um, you know, fight to be something different. And, 
Um, and so that really happy, loving childhood turned um, turned a corner and uh, and became a a very sort of dark internal struggle. Um, mm. And the you know the love that I had um, come to uh, think was unconditional. In fact, wasn't unconditional and I wasn't experiencing it as unconditional because, um, because, you know, there were, there were boundaries and, and who, who I was feeling to be inside was outside of the boundaries of that love. And, um, so it, it got, it got, uh, tough for a while. And then, um, you know, but I, you know, pushed it down like a good fundamentalist Christian and, uh, and, uh, and moved on, tried to be uh, a straight guy. And, um, and it wasn't until um, much, much later, I was in my uh, mid, late 20s. I was 27 by the time I finally uh, came out to my parents. But by that point, I, was, I had already been in a, in a relationship for three and a half years, totally in the closet. And um, uh, during that time, after I finished college, so all this is going on in college. I didn't date in college um, uh, guys or girls. And, um, and I met my first boyfriend as I was graduating. Um, and then that came to an end, you know, three, three, three or four years later, but I was working in Republican politics this entire time. So not only was the, the fundamentalist, uh, sort of indoctrination, uh, a major component to that discomfort with um, my identity, but w- even even who I was working for and among became a, an extra layer of sort of um, unacceptance and and repression. It was just like th- I didn't fit in either of these tribes really, but I was very much part of them, and so. Um, so it, it wasn't until it wasn't until 27, and I was on a major um, a major U.S. Senate campaign in Connecticut, and uh, and um, I got an email um, that was essentially uh, an anonymous threat uh, to out me. Um, Whoa! Not just to the campaign, but to make a make a problem for my candidate at the time. Um, and this was probably the number one or no, number two, number one or number two uh, U.S. Senate race at the time. Everybody was watching these th- this race. And and while you know uh, you know marriage equality wasn't um, wasn't a major issue in that campaign, it hadn't become one yet. I'm pretty sure that. Um, that my candidate was, you know, if she was asked the question, probably would have either dodged it or said she's for traditional marriage equality. So it, w- it could have potentially become an issue. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified at the time. And I just remember um, getting this email and didn't know who it was from, um, couldn't figure out who it was from. I tried every every method possible <laughs> to trace it and see, like, who, who you know, what, who who hates me this much that they would do something like this? And, um, and my very first instinct when I couldn't figure it out, I was sitting there sort of in the, in the, it was probably 11 o'clock at night in the campaign headquarters. And, uh, my first instinct was to call my communications director at the time, 
not my parents, not my sister, not, you know, I, I, that's, that's the kind of soldier that I was, right? Oh, man. Uh, Call my communication director. I'm like, got to talk. He, he thinks, you know, somebody died. Are you okay? I'm like, um, I just need to talk to you. Like, not in the office. We need to talk. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, um, I show him the, uh, show him the email. I go climb in his pickup truck, show him the email. And, and uh, I am to this day, extremely grateful to him for how he, how he handled that because, um, it was the most, most exposed, most vulnerable I've ever felt, had ever felt at that point. And he said, uh, uh, two things. One, take a deep breath because this is going to be okay. And number two, if anybody tries to write this story, I'll squash it. And this was a guy who um, walked up and down, paced up and down the campaign office with a baseball bat over his shoulder while he talked to reporters. So when he says, I'll squash the story, <laughs> I believed him. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. Uh, and, and, and that was the moment. Um, that, that was the moment. You know, took a couple days to, 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 to shake that off. And I decided that... I was never going to allow somebody else to have that kind of control over me ever again. Not yeah. ever would they, nobody gets to have that kind of power over me, which meant I needed to own who I was, own, own my story. And, um, and that was in September of 2010 and so that Thanksgiving, I, I, I flew home. My sister, uh, one of my sisters who was in New Zealand at the time, um, I, I, I told her over Skype and, um, and I got her to agree to come home from New Zealand for Thanksgiving and, <laughs> uh, and be there with me when I told, when I told our parents and, yeah. and, and she did. And that was, that was when I finally came out to my parents and, and soon after that, um, I, uh, I, I, that, that was a big, that was a major hurdle, which sort of allowed for me to begin living into a more authentic sense of self. And, uh, and it was the following year, early the following year when I, uh, came out to my, my colleagues, my bosses and, uh, and basically told them like, look, um, I am prepared to not work for you anymore. If that's what this, if that's if that's what it means, if that right. Um, yeah, but yeah. this is who I am, and it's not changing. And and that means that I can't work for candidates who, um, you know, are are extremely anti LGBT. And you know, I was I was beginning to merge these two different worlds that I had constructed and sustained for so long. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, I've been I've been going on for a while, but that was a very long answer to a pretty simple question. <laughs> no, no, no. You covered, you covered a lot of ground there that, um, yeah. that I was very curious about because, uh, it, it's, I can only imagine it's gotta be difficult enough to be dealing with those things behind the scenes and, and kind of fighting with your own identity in the context of a, of a situation where, you know, you just have one of those components, you know, like your parents are, are very yeah. conservative politically or conservative uh, theologically, but you have all of these things. And on top of that, your pastor is also your dad, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah what kind of, I mean, it, it, you know, if, if, you, if you're okay sharing, like what, 
Yeah. I guess what what kind of response did you initially get from your family, and then what was the response from your your coworkers after you kind of made the progression? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, you say my you know my pastor was my dad because he was, and I remember as a teenager. Uh, sort of in some desperate argument, you know, uh, just like yelling, uh, can't you just be my dad and not my pastor? Oh, wow. And like, that's a sentiment that really resonates deeply because I felt it. It was like, it, you know, all, and there's, you know, now having been in therapy for, I don't know, five years weekly, which I still love. I, I go every week cause I love it. Oh, um, amen. <laughs> you know, you can, you can, you can, you can have a, you know, that's an analyst field day when you have, when you have God and dad wrapped up in the same figure and, <laughs> right. uh, right. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, uh, they, um, and, and I should say, uh, in, in, in case they're listening to this, I have a great relationship with my parents now. Um, <laughs> we don't talk as much as we should and that's on me, but, um, but, uh, but everyone has come a long way since, since this moment. But, yeah. um, but at that, at that time when I, when I came out to them, it wasn't good. It didn't go great. Um, you know, I, I distinctly remember, uh, the look on my dad's face, which said to me, um, you know, I, I was hugging my mom after I, after I said, on Thanksgiving, right? Of yeah. course, because drama <laughs> and major holidays. Uh, yes. <laughs> major holiday. Absolutely. <laughs> um, um, I, you know, I was hugging my mom, uh, looking over her shoulder at my dad. And I just remember this look on his face that to me said, you know, why are you smiling? Cause I felt so relieved. I was, I was smiling. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I, and the look on his face was kind of like, why are you smiling? Like, mm. well, it was like a, we'll fix this kind of look, you know, like, don't like, don't we'll fix this. And then when I started smiling, it was like, yeah. yeah. And that, that stuck me with, with me for a long time. And it would be a long time after that until, um, until my dad and I could, could have a real conversation. So, um, yeah, so it didn't go well. My sister, uh, at, at, at that point, Kristen, she was my rock. And, um, and it continues to be to this day. And, uh, and I have, I have a great relationship with her and my other sister. And, um, yeah, so, so on the family side, I, I had, uh, you know, a couple of siblings who were very supportive and, um, and when I told my bosses, um, to my surprise, they were also, uh, supportive, and, um, you know, one of them at the time, uh, I, I don't work with these people anymore. One of them was, a you know, an ex-military guy. Um, and I just, I remember him saying to me, um, you know, I will, I'll defend you to the death. Wow. And, and, and the other guy was like, I, first of all, I don't care. And, uh, and second of all, I knew, <laughs> and, and, uh, right. And so, yeah. like, yeah. okay. Uh, so, so it, those responses, those reactions were actually, they were really surprising to me, um, because, um, that was probably when I began to sort of, um, look very closely at the politics I was engaged in, the, the candidates I was working for, um, the, 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 the dissonance, uh, that I had accumulated, um, working in, working in the Republican party, which can, you know, which, uh, had been, um, 
going further and further in a direction that I, uh, you know, that I, that I found problematic. And, and that was, that, that was a sort of a long journey. I mean, that was in 2010, 2011. That's when I started to really unpack things and, um, and enter my, my deconstruction phase. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cue, cue the theme music. <laughs> I wish we, ha- um, I wish we had some, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and it was at that time. So let's talk about Rob Bell for a minute. Hi Rob. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, because it was at that point that, uh, that love wins came out. Oh and, man. What timing. Uh, yeah. It was, it was the, and, and here's the funny part. Here's the, well, funny. It was, it's poetic, right? So growing up in an evangelical church, um, during the, you know, during the nineties, um, my dad was a fan of this really cool, (laughs) you know, black glasses, black rim glasses wearing really hip pastor who was, who was, you know, just on the, on the rise. And so, showed me all these Numa videos and I was like, oh, this guy's kind of cool, right? I'm like, okay, whatever, dad, right? <laughs> and uh and and then and so I so I knew of him and I'd followed and and the first everything is spiritual DVD, right? Yep. Uh which I thought was really, really cool. Um and so t- 2011 rolls around, Love Wins drops while I'm going through all of this. And it was exactly what I needed to read at exactly the right time. And it, it was, um, it, it was almost like, you know, I'm in, I'm in free fall and I landed in a safety net. It was just like, oh my God, like, okay. Um, and, uh, it was, it, so it was a huge relief and that book really started to open things up for me. And, and I, and I started going deep and, I, and that's just part of who I am. I've been naturally a curious person when I was, you know, 13, 14, I was reading Francis Schaeffer's The God Who Is There, He Is There, Not He Is Not There, the trilogy, right? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. okay, if if I'm going to do this whole, like, God thing, I'm going to be able to defend it logically, right? So, <laughs> so, so, of course, I went to the Christian logician to, to, to learn about how to make, uh, how to make apologetic arguments for the existence of God. Right. And, uh, and so, um, so, so, so this, so Rob's book comes out and it's just, it starts this, uh, this spiral and really healthy, I say spiral, it's a very healthy spiral, um, uh, and I started reading everything I could get my hands on, and especially from um, from writers who were, th- you know, thinking about um, uh, the, the scriptures in their you know, ancient historical um, and cultural context. And I, I was, it was like I started to wake up. Yeah, it was really, like I started to wake up. Then I read Mel White. I think it was Stranger at the Gate. Okay. Um, and some of your listeners might be familiar with this. Mel White is Jerry Falwell's was Jerry Falwell's uh, ghostwriter, and he tells this story in in um, I think it's in that book about uh, first of all coming out to Jerry Falwell and Jerry Falwell basically saying, "Okay, so when can you write my next book?" and and put that as like example number two of <laughs> cynicism and dissonance that I was starting to pick up on, right? Um, and then he tells another story about how they were riding in a car together on a way to a speech that Jerry was giving, and um, and they're in the backseat of this car, and there's LGBT protests outside of where he was going to speak, and Jerry turns to Mel and says, 
You know, Mel, if the gays didn't exist, I'd have to invent them. Wow. Then, after reading that story, I started learning about all of the money that... I started making parallels between... Drawing parallels between how the evangelical uh, marketing machine had made so much money, and probably in the billions Mm. at that point, on hate-mongering against the LGBT community, raising money against the gay agenda um, via direct mail, via the same tools and tactics that the Republican campaign operatives that I worked with would use to raise money for politicians. It was exactly the same thing. And so I started to put these pieces together. There's so much cynicism and so much dissonance going on among the people who work in these industries um, uh, and, and for these people, that these, these, these institutions that I had been a part of began to crumble like right before my eyes. Everything, it was like once, once you see, you cannot unsee, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, so, so, so I read a lot of stuff. Um, and I started breaking everything down. By this point, I was not going to church. I was not even interested. And I, honestly, I hadn't been for a long time up to that point because, um, you know, I had put God and and uh, and faith in general into a box in a closet and just didn't open it because you know, I don't want to go in there because um, didn't feel good. Yeah. And uh, and so and so these worlds merging and and reconciling with one another and with self um required opening that box and really looking closely at what was in it and um yeah so that was the start of my my deconstruction and then um when when all of that started to fall apart um i uh i started looking very closely at, you know, well, what, what, what does this mean? Right. So what, what do I do now? Like, okay. Um, then, then I stumbled across the Reformation Project, which is a terrific organization doing great work. Um, you know, Matthew is doing great work advocating for LGBT inclusion within evangelical communities. And I think that work really needs to be done, taking a high view of scripture because it can be done. But, um, well, I don't belong there anymore. I don't identify. Uh, it is still my heritage. And I feel like, um, those, uh, there, there are, there are lots of people who can be helped by that work. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, um, and, you know, from a, from a policy perspective, from a, you know, political advocacy, advocacy, uh, perspective, there are, um, there are lots of people trying to do, um, progressive work in, uh, you know, advancing LGBT equality, uh, at this at the state level now that most uh, most of the work is done at the federal level um, the state level now is where most of it needs to be done but what they run into in uh, in trying to advocate for more inclusive policies at the state level is ultimately um, religious caucus leaders in the Republican party Yes. And so conversations about the merits of inclusive policies ultimately at that level do not hinge on the merits of the policy or the constitutionality. They ultimately hinge on conversations about faith. 
that when you when you sit down with a state legislator who's about to make a decision on whether or not um, whether or not transgender women and girls should be allowed to play in sports in high school sports, those conversations ultimately devolve into well, the Bible says this or God says this, and so. And, and so they, these the advocates at that level have learned that you have to be able to have theological conversations and you have to be able to at least, um, uh, you know, the very brave ones like Matthew will take a high view of scripture and try to advocate at that level. But most of the, most of those, most of those legislatures, legislators either aren't, aren't interested or aren't capable of having a conversation at that level about theology. And so, so ultimately it comes down to, um, how how good are you at dialogue and how good are you at you know interpersonal persuasion? So, um, wow, I think we're on a tangent. <laughs> I don't know how no, we got is, here. This um, is beautiful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, yeah. So that's so that's uh, deconstruction. I started to, uh, and then I found Pete Rollins. Um, I'm sure your listeners love. You just had him on recently. Yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah this not spring. too long ago. Uh, yeah, atheism for Lent. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Atheism for Lent, right? Um, and uh, uh, I went to my first wake in twenty. God, that would be seventeen, 19, twenty. This would be my fourth. So it must have been seventeen, uh, sixteen or seventeen. Sixteen or seventeen is what was my first wake. And um, and this is going somewhere, by the way. All of this culminated. <laughs> all it. all of this deconstruction and God, I, like I don't I don't believe any of this stuff anymore. My you know my my politics are deconstructing. My whole worldview is changing, and I was trying to figure out how to be and who to be in the same skin. And um, and I didn't believe anymore. I've long since abandoned the um, the the you know the any belief in the old white. Uh, you know, God on a cloud with a beard in the sky, right? right? Um, all of that was gone for me. All of that was dead for me. And I went to wake and um, I don't remember what the theme was that year, but I remember uh, there was lots of Nietzsche. There was lots of, um, <laughs> there was lots of, um, lots of Derrida, lots of um, um, sort of existential philosophy. And, um, and I remember after the first or second night, um, well, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of death of God uh, philosophy there. And I remember there was a first or second night and I was laying in bed in my hotel room and I, uh, I was just staring at the ceiling, pitch black, and I just started to sob. I just started to cry. Hmm. And it wasn't, I wasn't sad I wasn't, you know, despairing. I, it was, it was joy. It was relief. It was joy. But it was like, what happened that year? What happened at that moment was the God had died for me intellectually, my head. But that reality moved from my head into my body, and I finally let go. Like my body was letting go of all of that, and. Um, that was a that was a that was a very big moment, and it was after that that I, uh, you know, and, and by that point I had already left the party. I'd already sort of disidentified as a Republican because that was after Trump, um, you know, um, and uh, and yeah, it was um, 
that was a major turning point um, for me. And so, so after that is when I started to look at, okay, how am I going to realign what I'm doing in the world with who I know I am and what I know I value? And, uh, and that's, that's, you know, um, that's when the, that's when the really satisfying work began. Yeah. Gosh. And you got, you got right into the territory where I, where I kind of wanted to go anyway, which is, uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before. There's this, uh, very strange kind of interweaving between, um, conservative religion, conservative Christianity specifically and conservative politics. And it's almost, you can't have one without the other at this point, which is not the case for, right. you know, for example, the democratic party, it's, there's not right. this kind of strange bedfellow situation happening there. And, yeah. and so it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, so you did mention the fact that, you know, you have to be prepared to have some sort of those theological discussions yeah. and yet, uh, you know, it, it it's, I don't know. It's, it's difficult. It's, it, we've, we've had a lot of conversations about this in, in, in the sense that it seems to have devolved in the situation where uh, it's been used as a tool. You know, you, you have these single issue, uh, these single issues that you, that the Republican party to great success has been able to, to get millions and millions of people to vote a certain way based off of one single issue, whether it's abortion yeah. or gay marriage or whatever the case might be. Where that is not, you know, so w- when you started to see these types of things, obviously you had a, a moment, a, a conscience, a, a crisis of conscience, uh, and not everyone yeah. has had that, but, but I, I think it really kind of came to fruition within the last uh, election cycle or two. Uh, obviously, since yeah. Trump came about, you started to see people say, wait a minute, uh, something's wrong here. Something's very broken, but not everybody. There's still a overwhelming majority of white evangelical Christians still, after everything that we saw over the past handful of years, still cast their vote yeah. Uh, yeah. For, for an individual who, in, in my opinion, my personal opinion, uh, could not be more of the antithesis of, you know, <laughs> the Jesus in the New Testament. So from somebody, you know, who, who has worked on the inside of, of politics and you started to see kind of this weird marriage between the two, uh, is that something that can even be fixed at this point? I mean, obviously this was decades in the making. This didn't happen overnight. Yeah. Can it be fixed? That's, uh, that's a, um, that's the question of the hour, isn't it? Um, so let's, uh, there's, there's a lot in there. Um, okay. So for one thing, I think, I think, uh, first of all, the, uh, the segment of white Christians and they're mostly evangelicals, um, who, who didn't see anything wrong with Trump and actually still don't see anything wrong with Trump. I would argue and maybe this is controversial. I'm sure it's controversial that <laughs> that comes from a very, very flimsy faith. Mm. If, if you are justifying your support of a man like Donald Trump, it has nothing to do with either Christianity or conservatism. 
Mm. It's actually cultural and it's actually fear-based because Donald Trump was not and is not a conservative. He never was. And I right. mean, small C conservative. He doesn't believe in smaller government. He doesn't believe in, he, he doesn't believe in any of the classically conservative things that the Republican party used to stand for, but explain that's a that, completely if, different conversation. Yeah. Yeah, we'll explain yeah. that first too, actually, because I think that's important. Sure. Like there yeah. is a very big difference between what the Republican yeah. party kind of stands for now versus, you know, we talk about Eisenhower Republicans or even Reagan Republicans. Yeah. There's a big difference. Yeah. There's a, there's a big difference. I mean, um, family values, um, taxing and spending, uh, big government, um, that the, and by the way, so Donald Trump's ta- tax cuts, one of the largest tax cuts in history, uh, mostly benefiting corporations and the wealthy and tax, tax cuts, everybody, your listeners should understand, um, they need to be understood as spending bills because that's essentially what the government is doing. It's spending more money and it's giving it, it's giving it to certain people and organizations. Um, it comes off of the balance sheet of the federal government. And, uh, and, and that was one of the, one of the biggest spending projects, uh, um, in, in recent history. Um, the Republicans, I learned through my through my deconstructing process, right? <laughs> um, all the things that I thought were really grounded in um, in in a, in a small C conservative ideology that emphasized individual liberty and and responsibility, and those two things have to always go hand in hand. Um, those. Those 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 things didn't really matter to most of of the voters and even most of the officials that they elected. Um, when you go back and look at the 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 the, the co opting of the church, uh, the moral majority in the eighties um, before before Ronald Reagan, the Republican Party realized uh, it was never going to win a national election ever again, and that was because the South was Democrat. For the most part, and so they concocted this plan to co-opt the church and the issues of of homosexuality and abortion, in particular, in order to peel off white Democrats in the South to become Republicans, and it worked. But those two th- those two issues, that co-opting of the church in order to win the South so that they could carry a national election again. Um, they had nothing to do with uh, with conservative philosophy. They had nothing to do uh, with with anything principled. They were purely a cynical electoral calculation to 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 move people from one side of the of the tally to the other. And what happened was um, the co-opting the church and then the emphasis on these social cultural issues. They became uh, enshrined as gospel, essentially, a Republican gospel. They became part of the platform, and that platform is often just taken for granted as being a conservative platform by most of the rank-and-file uh, membership of the Republican Party. So, 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 you, so you fast forward to 2004, and George W. Bush is on the, on the ballot, and you know what Ken Melman, who was then the chairman of the Republican Party at the time, did? Helped to orchestrate... Um, putting ballot initiatives 
in in many of the key swing states that Bush needed to win in that election uh, that would have um, put constitutional amendments at the state level banning gay marriage. Whoa. They used those, they, they used the anti-gay sentiment, particularly among um, evangelical voters, to turn out Republicans um, who would then ultimately vote for Bush. But it was a turnout mechanism. So um, I, 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 this is, you know, coming back to your question about, uh, you know, conservatism versus republicanism, um, the conservatism is a, is a, is a coherent um, ideology about how uh, a society ought to function. And, uh, and you can, you know, you can take it or leave it, but it has, it has some, it has, it has merit to it, right? It's, it's, it's thought out, it's principled, it's consistent. Um, it's a, it's a way of seeing the world that's, that's coherent. Um, the Republican party is purely an electoral machine. That's what it exists to do. And when I realized that ultimately winning was all that mattered, all that ever mattered, um, that's when uh, I knew I couldn't be a part of it anymore. Not, not because I was this hardcore you know, conservative, but I believed that um, in the things that I, that I thought were right, that you know, generally you know, individual freedom and personal responsibility are good values, um, all, of, all of that was, uh, it was a lie. It was it was it was it was made up in order to um, to to win elections. So uh, so that's a, that 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 was the culmination of of leaving the party behind um, because it wasn't uh, it wasn't true it wasn't real and 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 the the seeking of power which is now on full display with no apologies right. Um, Donald Trump essentially was the culmination of all of that. He was the, he was not an aberration in Republican politics. He's, he is the natural conclusion. He's the product of, of 20, 30, 40 years of Republican, uh, Republican politics. So, so that, that's why I say that was the straw that broke the camel's back because he was an, he was a, um, you know, the embodiment of the fact that the Republican party, um, actually only ever cared about winning. It was all about the pursuit and preservation of power at all costs. So, um, yeah. And now, now there's no apology for that. That's exactly what you see on, on full display. Um, you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, and that's that the most remarkable the part. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the most remarkable part to me is is there is this unabashed, um, just out in the open, uh, just yeah, just win at all costs, and we will do oh, yeah. court whoever we need to court. Uh, yeah. simply for, for, for votes. Even, I mean, I'd never thought I'd see the day where uh, a president did not, uh, you know, uh, speak out against something like white supremacy. Like oh, never yeah. thought I'd see the day. Cause it's like, yeah. well, th- those are voters. They do vote, yeah. you know? And it's like, yeah. oh my gosh, like the things that yeah. I never thought I'd see. Or like one of the things I want to ask or you about militarized too. militarized white supremacy group. Uh, yes. Stand back and stand by. January sixth, right? the yeah, the insurrection of the capital. Oh my god, yeah, Un- unbelievable. And yeah. so it seems like, and I, this is this is what I want to get your take on it, is that they've taken kind of, as you said, this this uh, mechanism uh, that they use to win elections, and they they've taken it to the the next logical level to the extent now where for the past four or five years. Uh, any any uh, news source or any voice that speaks mm-hmm. to the contrary has been demonized as the enemy. Literally, the media is the enemy, and so yeah. it, it, you know, yeah. it, CNN's bad, MSNBC's bad. Like all of these are bad, um, yeah. and and certain terms are even political size are demonized now. Like so, you know, there's a visceral response that you get from people just by hearing the words like uh, progressive or conservative or liberal or gr- mm. green, green, green. Now green's a bad word. So, and, and like, yeah. Yeah. what's interesting to me is I, I would wager to guess that most people when press could not define any of those terms in an adequate sense. Oh, of course not. No, yeah. but they don't need to. They're never, they're never asked to. They're only meant to elicit a fear response. Um, yeah, you're, um, you're totally right. But, um, but, but I think ultimately, I mean, if there's a glimmer of hope here, I think ultimately it's that the, uh, well, maybe it's not so hopeful. First of all, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Let's just put that on the table, right? The next 20 years in America are going to be, are going to be, are going to be not so good for democracy. This we're in a fight, but, but the good news here is, and we're not in a fight over policy. That's just, that's the remarkable part. I, right. I never, never thought I would see the day when democracy would essentially be on the ballot. When right. the very system uh, that we use to organize ourselves is up for debate. Um, that, that a free and pluralistic society is something that we might not want. And right. that's, what, that's what one significant portion, that's what one major party is actually arguing now. And not just arguing, but scaring people into uh, into believing. So, um, the glimmer of hope here is that that core um, that core base of voters is shrinking. Um, that that a campaign against uh, the right to vote is ultimately a losing battle. Um, that that doesn't mean that doesn't mean they're not going to have some some victories along the way. And in fact, um, there are bills moving through state legislatures all around the country right now, just like the Georgia bill that just passed and was signed into law, trying to make it harder to participate in democratic government, small d democratic government, uh, trying to make it harder to vote, 
trying to make it hard to register vote, trying to make it harder to um, to get to the polls. Um, it's uh, and, and they're doing all of this because when you can't argue successfully for your policy positions, for your ideas about how to move America forward, the only thing you can do, and when you can't do that because it's a losing argument, because most of the country disagrees with you, you have to limit who can vote. That's the only play they have to shut more people out of the process because they're overwhelmingly uh, uh, in the minority. Those views are overwhelmingly in the minority. So, um, so ultimately, that just speaks to the weakness of of you know the the, the policy preferences uh, among the base of the Republican Party. But but uh, but they also control state legislatures um, for the most part, which means we're in a real fight for uh, for the future of American democracy. Um, it's going to be the defining fight, I think, of the next ten to twenty years. Wow. So I want to get your take on this and I'm, I'm certainly, I dabble, I dabble in politics. I, you know, I was a, I was a history major, so I had to take some poli sci courses and I always found it interesting. But even as a kid, I remember learning the, just the basics, you know, your basic civics. Yeah. And I remember learning about, uh, for example, gerrymandering and thinking to myself, oh, yeah. how the hell is that legal? You know, you're literally <laughs> redrawing the political map so you can include only the people who would vote for you. Like, and you get this political map that looks like an amoeba. How, how is yeah. that in 2021 still a legal practice? And then the other problem yep. that seems to be uh, kind of fueling uh, the candidates that we even get at the end um, is just money. Yep. Like just the vast, oh, yeah. absurd amounts of money that yeah. it, it just seems to me like yeah. the candidates who can spend the most money are the ones who are there at the, at the end. Is that, is that an accurate? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, um, uh, partially uh, it is. But ultimately, I think what I, you know, I think what you're expressing is the frustration with the shitty candidates. I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. You can say I'm shitty. sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, That's okay. Fine. Uh, uh, <laughs> they are the shitty, shitty candidates. candidates that you get at the, at the general election, right at the very end, right after all the yes. primaries, because the primaries are closed. Meaning, right. uh, with closed primaries and and heavily gerrymandered districts, what you end up with is a race to the fringes of each party, because each one is trying to be the purest possible candidate for their party. So. In in a closed primary, only only people in that party get to vote. So if it, if there are two candidates, three candidates, or four in a Republican primary, guess who votes in a Republican primary? The most animated of Republican voters. Guess who they vote for? The craziest candidates. <laughs> the ones who are just as animated and vocal as they are. And those people tend to be extreme. And so those people tend to win primaries. So this is how you end up with, um, you know, with Marjorie Taylor Greene oh, on a ballot. <laughs> this, this, because, because, so, so um, uh, yeah, so, so it's closed primaries combined with, um, with heavily gerrymandered districts. And, uh, and uh, the Supreme Court has, has recently kicked back a case uh, last year saying that um, you can't ban partisan data from from redistricting processes. We've, we're doing a whole series of this on on politicology, um, uh, which which completely makes sense. You can't essentially, uh, uh, you know, 
speaking as someone who's actually drawn the lines, I did that in Nevada in 2011, actually. Um, uh, it is, it is essentially impossible not to, uh, not to consider, um, you know, the, the, the partisan composition of the state you're, you're drawing, but, um, but the, we've, we actually just did this whole episode on the Voting Rights Act, which is where, um, where what Republicans have, have used to great success in order to draw um, gerrymandered districts that, that ultimately um, uh, pass in the litigation that follows, that, that, that they're upheld. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a major problem that is not easy to solve. Gerrymandering in it itself is, an, is not an easy problem to solve, especially considering that uh, places like, um, you know, Georgia, for example, which until just a few years ago um, had to run all of its uh, voting-related laws, including new district boundaries for congressional and state legislative districts, by the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., essentially asking for permission wow. to do to do that because they have such a history of disenfranchising minority voters, right? So that was a thing called preclearance. So um, that was recently struck down and, uh, and is no longer required. And so this will be the first year, first decade, um, first redistricting that, uh, that, that, for example, uh, states in the South, which were usually covered, like Georgia, will not have to ask for permission to change those, uh, change those boundaries. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, and, and Republicans increasingly are showing less and less, um, shame when it comes to exploiting, um, minority communities in order to draw advantage, uh, and draw an advantage on the map, um, for themselves. So, um, yeah, those are the two big factors driving um, driving uh, the the disproportional uh, advantage that they have, both in state legislatures and in the House. Um, yeah, man, <clears throat> I just think I, I remember it wasn't so bad. I guess this last election, but I remember um, maybe it was it was the last the last uh, election uh, or the last term for for Obama. I just remember receiving so much in the way of like pamphlets and just like the amount of fire kindling that I got that year. Yeah. And, and the, the, the amount of political ads, it was like every commercial was a political ad. It was absurd. And the amount of money that's just spent on, on these types of campaigns, it just seems like, you know, in a country that still for some strange reason thinks it's a multi-party system, which is absurd, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're a two-party yeah. system. Let's be real. We're a two-party system. Yeah. Yeah. A multi-party system would be fascinating in America. And yes. I'd love to see us move in that direction, uh, to have the benefits of a constitutional system with the benefits of a parliamentary system where you actually have to build coalitions in order to get something done. That would be very, I mean, that'd be very interesting to see. And, and wouldn't that really solve the problem? Because really at the end of the day, aren't most people more moderate than anything, right? Like I can, for example, I could say I can get on board with a a lot of conservative uh, policy in terms of, you know, uh, where we spend our money and how much we spend and spending it, you know, uh, responsibly. Um, But then socially, you know, the, the democratic party is really the only option for me because I'm, I'm for things like gay marriage and I'm, you know, yeah and healthcare for all and things like that. But there's not a party 
available that kind of splits yeah. the middle, right? Like, yeah. isn't that yeah. where a, an independent party would be perfect? But how how do they compete with the just fundraising machines of the established? Yeah, you know, two big ones. Yeah. So um, this, is a, this is a great question, and I actually worked on this for a few years uh, trying to trying to crack that nut with a with a project called. Um, uh, the Serve America movement, SAM, and it was basically an effort to create a new national party that didn't um, didn't uh, essentially have a have a platform based on policy, but rather on on problem solving and and local service, right? Service to the constituents, and um, and so I really went deep into the independent and reform space, and uh, and there's some great people doing really important work in that space, like. Um, trying to pass reform measures like uh, like open primaries and ranked choice voting, which essentially gives you the option to rank all of the candidates on your ballot in order of preference as opposed to just picking one because uh, that would that would essentially do away with, at least in theory, would do away with all of the extreme candidates winning. Um, um, and and but in order to become a party, uh, there are there are enormous barriers, and it's a fifty state patchwork of laws um, in order to become a major national political party. And it, you know, anywhere from uh, just sign this piece of paper, but then you have to win a you know you have to win um, you know a certain threshold of, of votes in a major election to you have to pay you know enormous six figure sums just to register as a party. Um, they, they, the, the two existing parties have made it, um, virtually impossible for that to ever happen. Oh, sure. And, <laughs> and, 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 and so, so it's really difficult to see how that will happen before, um, uh, you know, before we're able to solve some of the other problems like, uh, like gerrymandering and, uh, and, and close primaries. But yeah, you're right. Um, I think, uh, but, but here's, what's really interesting the two parties, <clears throat> excuse me, the two parties that do exist um, are are both going through really interesting uh, composition transitions. So the Republican Party is shedding voters uh, like crazy; it's shrinking. And so when you used to hear Donald Trump um, say things like, "Oh, we have a you know we have a ninety five or ninety eight percent approval rating among Republicans," what he isn't telling you is that the pie of Republican voters had shrunk about 10% since he became president. So, so yeah, sure, maybe you have a 95% approval rating, but there are 10% fewer people because they've left because they don't like you, right? right? Because you've taken this party into a direction that these people don't want to go to. So it's continually shedding voters. And guess where they're going? Some of them are independents. Some of them are switching to Democrats. Hmm. So now the Democratic Party is increasingly... Um, uh, white collar workers, and so now you have this very interesting um, uh, and increasingly tenuous uh, situation within the Democratic Party, where um, you, they, you know, uh, the the big tech companies um, are increasingly Democratic, uh, 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 but but and it's the Republicans who want to break up big corporations now, right? So Republicans are now trying to spin themselves as the blue collar party, the working man's party, which has been traditionally been the territory of the democratic party. So what you have is this, this almost this, this, um, 
positional rotation between the two where they're where where people are leaving one for the other and then you also have the the Obama Trump voters right because there are a lot of them so so increasingly Republican party wants to be the the party of the working man and the Democratic party is taking on these uh these socioeconomically better off and white collar workers which is which is creating different pressure mechanisms within within that party so um so the two options are 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 themselves evolving and um you know this is a this is a a much longer conversation <laughs> but you know what is the future of the republican party is something everybody wants to know but um but and i think a lot of it is going to hinge on like if we make democracy the defining fight over the next 10 20 years that's a winning fight it's still a fight but um but that is one currently the republican party is fighting against and uh and and so i see that as a way to um to uh accelerate its um its descent let's put it that way <laughs> um um uh, yeah, so no new major party on the horizon uh, for sure, um, but the two parties themselves are are changing, and the changing composition is going to change their policy preferences and and the things that they're advocating for. Um, and so, you know, for me, I didn't register with the Democratic Party when I left. I registered as an independent, although uh, you know, much of what I what I, much of where I think we should go aligns with, um, with, uh, mainstream democratic politics. Um, but I, but, but it's because of this party situation that I've, that I've observed that I don't, you know, I don't feel like I need to, you know, jump out of one boat into the other because I think the party system itself is, is, is flawed, although it's, it's what we have. Um, I'd like to see more, more parties, um, so that we can see coalitions between parties uh, to build majorities that move us move us forward. Yeah, it it seems like the other the other part of this is aside from just you know like uh, presidential candidates and that sort of thing are is just this congressional deadlock that we see as well. And you know any kind of policy that's ever going to happen, it seems almost like we are stuck in this situation now where you have to have full control you know, the house and the Senate in order for anything to get done. Because if you lose control of one, it almost seems like you're just going to see years of just gridlock. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think this is, so this goes back to your point about, about gerrymandering and, and the, and the house no longer being representative, uh, really of, of the, of the, of a, of the, of the popular vote, but also, um, it's no longer responsive to the inputs of its constituents, right? Americans are by and large uh, massively in favor of a handful of policies like take uh, background checks, for example, which still hasn't moved. Unreal. Massively in favor, right? And yet the body that is supposed to be responsive to the inputs of its key stakeholders, its constituents has not moved a muscle on an overwhelmingly popular policy. So what do we do? That's, this is, this is, I think this is part of why there's so much anger and so much frustration, um, with institutions in general. Um, uh, but, 
but and and now you see this debate happening within the Democratic Party about whether or not they should break the filibuster. But guess what? Joe Biden has not signaled support for breaking the filibuster in order to get something like that done. Um, so we, everyone's sitting here speculating over over what will the issue be that finally causes them to break the filibuster, use the impossibly narrow margin that they have in the Senate that is temporary, right? Uh, in in order to get something done. Um, and who knows, maybe it'll be immigration reform. Maybe it w- that feels like the right thing, right? Because we've been fighting about it for 20 years and both parties love fighting about immigration reform. It's more profitable to fight about it than it is to solve it. And, um, and that's, I think that's another dimension to the problem. Um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't have an answer other than, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and there are a lot of Damn reasons it. <laughs> for it. It's very, it's very calcified. Um, um, I, I, think, uh, I think the only answer really is, uh, for me, short term, is to elect as many Democrats as possible. Um, but, you know, uh, ultimately you need reforms in order to make the system more responsive. Yeah, those are just yeah. harder to get to. Yeah, because it seems yeah. like that natural built-in checks and balances uh, that that technically would exist if you had differing parties that could actually yeah. you know work together uh, is just gone. Yeah. At this point, it's like, well, yeah. whatever you guys put on the table because you guys suggested it, then I'm not doing it. You know, I'm not supporting that. That's it, exactly right. It's just very it's childhood. Totally right. like, it's all nope. positional now. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, it's 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 positional. There's very little uh, there's very little debate anymore that goes on around how to solve America's toughest problems. It doesn't happen because uh, because uh, so many reasons. Um, because there are, but mostly there, because there are no incentives to do that. All of the incentives drive individual actors and organizational actors in the opposite direction. Um, the way information moves now is so much faster than it used to be in the age of bipartisanship. Um, uh, the 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 media environment is it is in itself a an a, an escalating uh, uh, mechanism, right? So it 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 it, it loves ratings. And, and we know that outrage drives ratings. And so, um, he who shouts the loudest makes the most money in, uh, in, in the email inbox, right? When you're raising money and also, so does the network because people flock to that. So you have this, you have this really, um, twisted ecosystem that rewards the worst things, uh, that we, that we, that, you know, the stuff that we don't want in the system. And it's so, it's, it's so systemic. Um, it's really difficult to see how any of that changes unless, um, uh, you know, you know, Mike Madrid actually has some really interesting thoughts on, on how, um, he's, he's, he comes on politicology quite a lot. He's one of my fellow co-founders, uh, at the Lincoln project, although we, we both left, um, in December. Um, he, he talks, uh, about how, um, potentially moving closer to a, um, you know, something that satisfies the, the, the populist, uh, sentiment among, among Republicans, almost like more direct democracy, Mm. um, uh, because, you know, he and I've had long conversations about this, um, 
how everything's on demand for us these days. Right. Right. Everything's on demand. I mean, from 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 food to laundry to transportation to sex, if you want it, to everything is on demand, uh, except the government. Except, (laughs) except Congress, except, um, you know, this, this system we've set up in order to, uh, to govern ourselves. It's the most antiquated, frustrating experience. And, um, and it does feel like it's due for an update. Um, American style representative democracy was designed to be slow and deliberative, and we're now in an age when nothing we do is slow and deliberative. <laughs> That's true. Um, I, I, I very, very little, um, and and I think there's a really inherent tension in in that. Um, I don't, you know, obviously that's that's not an argument for changing the structure of American government, but but it but it is something worth thinking about how how we can make it more responsive and and more quickly responsive. Um, without being reckless. Um, so I don't know. I'd, I'd love to hear more ideas on that front. I think it's really interesting. I think, I think that, I think it is real. I think the problem is real. And I think that is a major factor, but, um, I don't know what exactly the solution would be. Yeah. Um, I think this is a great segue into it uh, because I know we're running short on time, but I would be remiss if oh. we didn't talk about your, uh, your, your podcast, Politicology. Um, so like, yeah. uh, what I think is fascinating about this uh, is I, I, I'm, I'm very much, um, you know, I will, I will say and call out uh, social media and media in general as a problem when it is a problem. And it often is a problem. You know, we, yeah. we can look back to prior, the yeah. prior elections where Facebook was essentially used as a tool by our enemies, you know, to propagate, mm-hmm. you know, uh, misinformation and things like that. So, it, but it's, what's interesting to me though, is the solution almost seems to be the same thing though, where there's, you know what I mean? Like we can also use it for good. And there are things like podcasts out there that, um, you know, didn't podcast didn't exist, you know, two decades ago, but now we have podcasts with very educated, uh, folks like yourself who have a gift for explaining, uh, the system in a way that, that makes sense to the average show like myself, you know? And, and so I think, uh, the work that you're doing, I think, is massively important, especially now. So, tell the listeners a little bit about uh, why you started the the podcast and what is what is yeah. the agenda here. You know, what's the motivation? Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Although mostly it's my guests who get to explain to the listeners how how <laughs> things okay. work and Same and, here. and sound brilliant all the time. <laughs> um, uh, I started the podcast under the Lincoln Project um, because. Uh, we needed to do something different um, than 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 just the negative ads that were bashing Trump and uh, and you know those those served a purpose absolutely, but ultimately um, it was it was a it was part of our voter contact uh, effort. And when I say voter contact, that's lingo in political campaigns for we're reaching out to persuadable voters who we think we can we can move in some way. And so what we what we knew was. A, we needed to create permission structures uh, for people to people who were Republicans that we needed to vote against Donald Trump, and that meant um, telling stories, featuring stories about people who had done the same thing, 
and telling them why. And the 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 Lincoln Project as a as a as an organization uh, served that purpose because we were all former Republicans. Um, some some of the founders, uh, I think I don't know. I think everybody's pretty much left left the left the party behind, but um, I won't speak for them individually. Um, uh, it was very powerful, I think, for people to see a whole bunch of of, of consultants and, and and operatives who'd worked in and for the highest level politicians in the country uh, stand up and say, "No more. We're going to fight against them this time. This one guy. We're going to take him down." And uh, and so we 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 created these permission structures by by talking about why um, and gave people an opportunity after they'd seen the ads and were curious about why this group of people would do this to listen to podcasts that explained a lot more about, um, about the journey to get to this moment, um, what it took to, to stand up and say no, why Donald Trump, uh, needs to be defeated. Um, and why we all feel so strongly about that, that we've staked our reputations on it and, and walked away. Um, uh, and so we had really long form conversations, uh, a couple of with, with, um, you know, former, uh, with, with, uh, people who'd switched their votes from, um, from Trump to, to Biden, but also, um, conversations that really, uh, put more meat on the bone to that argument, uh, for, for people who were really serious about it. So, so that was, that, and, and it worked actually. What happened was the, the the Democrats who loved the Lincoln Project would then share these the podcast episodes with their conservative family members who they really couldn't have constructive conversations with, and uh, and then we started receiving these, this deluge of of emails about how um, this this person switched their vote because they because they they really absorbed this information. They went they listened to hours of this and 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 it worked. So. Through this process, um, uh, I, I realized I, I first of all I really enjoy this because um, I, I'm naturally curious and I love asking these questions and and it was and it was um, meaningful and important that 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 part of the work. So when I left, I knew I want to keep doing this in in some way. But now that Trump is gone, what do we do? Okay, we won that battle really narrowly, barely. And and now he's gone, um, but Trumpism is not gone. Uh, in fact, it's very much alive and well, and and it's on full display, and uh, and it's getting worse. And you see this, you know, you see this in the Republican Party now. Um, and so, what does it look like to continue this conversation with the people who've been along for the ride and more? Um, and what we decided was it's part of what led us to um, Donald Trump was, I think, a desperately weakened civic immune system. We were not prepared for an authoritarian to take the White House. As a country, as an electorate, we weren't prepared for that. Uh, and it's because it's never happened before. We've had it good in that in that that has never been a threat that America has faced. We did we always thought it couldn't happen here. Well, it did, and I think part of the part of our task moving forward is to build a foundation, build build up that immune system, 
so that we recognize threats to democracy in the future. That means beginning to recognize that politics is so much bigger than voting every two years, than, uh, than a campaign that lasts for six or eight months and, and television ads and, uh, and, and crazy candidates. It's so much bigger than that. And that actually politics is embedded in every part of your life, when you, whether you realize it or not. And you bump up against it every single day, multiple times a day. And, um, and part of what politicology is doing is drawing those connections between things that we don't think of as political and how they, how they are political. So we just did this episode on sports. Um, we're, we're doing this with psychology. We're doing this with um, with we're going to do this with anthropology. There are there are so many ways to um, to intersect politics with uh, with seemingly unrelated disciplines, um, and it's be, it's by flexing that muscle by beginning to see that actually everything really is political, and that by saying oh, I, I'm just not into politics or I'm just not a very political person. That's actually, um, well, first of all, it's not true. <laughs> but also that actually comes, well, and, and I can understand the sentiment, the emotion of being exhausted by it. It actually comes from a place of privilege to be able to say that because politics affects everybody, yes. everything. And so, um, so politicology is an effort to draw those connections more deeply to um, to to help people see um, a bigger picture and most importantly to see their role in it um, because it isn't just for politicians and political operatives and a different class of people who get to do that for a living it is it is inherently everybody's job if we're going to move forward together and if we're going to uh, avoid certain catastrophe like another Donald Trump, a more capable Donald Trump, in order to avoid that, we have to do the work now. And that means uh, becoming more engaged, more aware, uh, and and um, more, more ready to participate um, in the process. And, uh, yeah, so that's what we're doing at Politicology and, and, and then some, but that's the, <laughs> that's the sort of energizing, um, motivation. So we're having lots of conversations. We do a weekly roundup every, uh, Friday where we discuss the most important news stories with a rotating panel. And then we'll do a long form interview with, um, with a special guest, uh, and those come out on, on Wednesdays. So. Oh, that's fantastic. It's funny because I think I draw a connection to to the work that we do in the sense that I've always viewed it as just helping out with people's ignorance. And I don't mean that in a mean way. Yeah. I just um, think yeah, of course. I just think it's easy to go on autopilot when it comes to yeah. religion, when it comes to politics, especially when things are going well. And at some point though, you have to kind of open your eyes and and do the work. And I and I think part of it is just people just don't know. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you talk about, we talk about theological concepts like, uh, yeah. atonement theory, you know, yeah. things like that. Yeah. And people just take it for granted that that is the only viewpoint, you right. know? And right. I think it's, right. it's very true with, especially true with politics. It's, 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 uh, it's amazing how little, uh, the average 
voter knows about how the political process even works, yeah. you know, and, you know, maybe, maybe we could get into a much longer conversation about, uh, yeah. the education system or whatever, but, oh man, civic education, mm-hmm. uh, that's a, a, another conversation, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think educating people and I think, uh, it's so easily accessible now, especially with, po- through the podcast medium and it's free and it's, it's, you know, it's, yeah, like I said, it's easily accessible. Anybody can pick it up and listen to it, and it's free education out there. Totally. And so, uh, so keep up the great work. I, I love it. Um, this was such a fun conversation for me to have. I was geeking out a little bit. I don't get to talk politics very yeah. often. So, no, this is great, man. <laughs> this is this is really fun and really fun for me too because I don't, you know, no. Usually, like I said, I'm asking the questions, so this is fun. I hope I didn't talk too long. <laughs> no, this is great. This is great. I loved it, and I, and I think it's fun too because. Uh, we like I said, we don't get to talk about politics very often, and to have somebody who can yeah. come on and kind of break down what these things actually mean, you know, yeah. um, you, you threw out some, you, know, you threw out the idea of um, you know uh, closed primaries, you know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't even know, <laughs> and I consider yeah. myself fairly informed. <laughs> uh, I just show up and vote, you know, that that was even the thing until this ala- last election cycle, and I'm a 41 year old man, <laughs> so like. <laughs> If I yeah. didn't know that, I'm sure there's a whole host of other things I don't know and a whole bunch of things that most the average, you know, citizen probably isn't aware of. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 totally. You're definitely not alone. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so <sighs> much. This, is, this is so fun. Really yeah. Fun. We'll have to do it again yeah. sometime and we can get, Absolutely. we can go even deeper. So, <laughs> Absolutely. I'd like that. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Thanks, John, thank yeah. you so much. Oh, before I let you go, oh my gosh, I, uh, yeah. tell people where they can go to, to find the podcast and to stay up on oh. top of everything that you're up to. Yeah, sure. You can find Politicology on Apple, Spotify, Google, everywhere you get your podcasts. It's Politicology, P-O-L-I-T-I-C-O-L-O-G-Y. And uh, we have a website, politicology.com. And I'm generally on Twitter. Uh, this, Twitter and Instagram is the really only ones I use. I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter and, uh, and I think at plot politicology pod on Twitter. So yes, I can confirm yeah. this. <laughs> 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 Both. So yes. Uh, cool. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Awesome. This is, this is a ton of fun. Yeah. I, I feel like we've got a lot of, uh, geeking out to do, so we should get together in person sometime Absolutely. when the stars line. I would love that. I'm now that we're all fully vaccinated. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> get vaccinated, everybody. That's right. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go to concerts again. That would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to go to a real wake again. So. Yes. Oh, I keep promising right? Pete every year. I'm like, I'm coming to Ireland, man. I'm, Dude, I'm doing it this do year. Do it. Do it. I need to. And then the pandemic next hit, and I'm year. like, well, now I can't. So. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. Maybe we'll meet at Wake next year. Actually. That'd be amazing. That'd be cool. Yeah. yeah. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> oh, thanks. All right. Thanks so much, man. <laughs> really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Talk to you later. All right. Does God have a face? Does he? She can't.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.